Heavenly Father, I pray as we open your word that you would indwell this place with your Holy Spirit, that he would be our teacher today, and you would open our hearts and our minds to exactly what it is you want us to hear from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So how many of you have baked a cake before? Yeah, a few of you. How many of you have baked a cake successfully? Okay, about the same, that's good. So if you've baked a cake successfully, you know that to bake a cake successfully, it takes the right ingredients, and it takes the right amount of those ingredients put together in the right order, baked at just the right temperature for just the right amount of time. And God's plan is sort of similar to that. It's not quite as formulaic as baking a cake, but there are ingredients, and there's a balance between those ingredients. And there's an order that, if we follow it, will accomplish all God has intended in our lives and in our community and in our world. This summer, we've been talking about what it means to be devoted to God's plan. Because God has a plan to address all of the uncertainty and the brokenness that exists in our lives and in our culture. And his plan is really quite simple. His plan is his people. And as we've been discovering over the past few weeks, we find the fundamentals of God's plan at the end of the second chapter of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a historical account of the apostles' ministry, and the apostles were a group of disciples who had been directly taught by Christ and in whom he entrusted the responsibility to establish his church to spread the gospel around the world. And what we've seen so far about God's plan is that the first step in that plan is to get ourselves into a right relationship with God, to have our relationship with God restored through the work of Christ on our behalf. And then once we have our relationships restored, God wants to grow and deepen his relationship with us. And the way we do that is by devoting ourselves to prayer, devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to learning more about him, and devoting ourselves to fellowship with other believers. And in Acts 2, 44 to 47, we read, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. In the beginning, in the early church, it was going so well. They were together. They had everything in common. They would even go as far as selling possessions they had to make sure that those who were in need had their needs met. And as a result, God was adding to their numbers. Things were going so well for the early church. But then the problems started to creep in. Why? Because in the end, people are still people. If we have a restored relationship with God, then he's working to transform us over time to become more like Christ. 
but we're not perfect yet. And so sometimes those old habits and tendencies and prejudices that we have from before we were saved will creep in and rear their ugly heads. The first fractures in the unity of the early church are seen in Acts chapter 5. And by the time we get to the beginning of Acts chapter 6, the issues are coming to a head. In the beginning, their spiritual unity led to a type of communal living and sharing among the church. The wealthier would share what they had, even selling their property, to ensure that the less fortunate had what they needed. Their spiritual unity led to a sort of economic unity. There wasn't inequality, but nobody went without. Their devotion to prayer, their devotion to the apostles' teaching, their devotion to fellowship with the believers led them to follow God's plan, not just to restore spiritual brokenness, but to store, restore relational brokenness, to restore physical brokenness, to restore economic brokenness. They were seeing the needs of the people around them. They were raising those needs to other people, and they were working together to meet the needs. They were caring for the widows, the orphans, and the poor. But as F.F. Bruce notes, this pooling of property could be maintained only when their sense of unity of the Spirit was exceptionally active. As soon as the flame began to burn a little lower, the attempt to maintain their communal life faced serious difficulties. And so we arrive in Acts chapter 6. Verse 1, where we read, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Everything up to this point had been about unity. They were united by their faith in Christ, which led to an overall unity in their lives. But now we see the division starting to form in the church. And the issue of food was likely just the straw that broke the camel's back. It was likely just a symptom of other issues that were simmering under the surface. Because as it often does, the tension comes to a head in what can really appear to be a simple and mundane issue. I know I've been there many times, more times than I'd like to admit, in the middle of an argument with somebody, an argument about nothing. Because the argument is really about something else. So what was going on in the early church? What was the argument really about? Basically, what we see is the beginnings of a culture war. You might even go as far as calling it racism. Let's go have a little bit of a history lesson. The church was born among a relatively small group of people. Acts 1.15 tells us there were about 120 of them. And these were the apostles and other disciples who had spent a considerable amount of time with Jesus during his three years of teaching. And 
most of them, if not all of them, were born and raised in the area in and around Jerusalem and Palestine. These were the Hebraic Jews, the real Jews, if you will. And they were very proud of their culture and their identity. But the church was growing quickly, and as the church grew, people from other cultures were being saved too. These were the Hellenistic Jews, who were basically immigrants in Israel. The Hellenistic Jews, also known as Grecian Jews, had either relocated to Jerusalem or were in Jerusalem as part of a pilgrimage for the Passover season. The Hellenistic Jews were the descendants of Jews who had been scattered throughout the known world as part of the Babylonian or the Assyrian exiles. They were Jewish in ancestry, but their belief and belief, but they had grown up in other cultures. And they were viewed suspiciously because of their place of birth, their different language, and their culture. Because they were much more Greek in their thinking, in their outlook on life. They were much more Greek in how they behaved than they were Hebrew. And they tended to group together as most immigrant cultures do. And prior to their conversion to Christianity, they even worshipped separately from the Hebraic Jews. And the Hebraic Jews looked down on the Hellenistic Jews as second-class citizens in their society. And I know some of you have been there before. Some of you have experienced this. Either your parents emigrated to this country or you emigrated to this country. And now you live in sort of a split cultural world. And when you go back to your country of origin, it's not quite the same anymore, is it? You don't quite fit in anymore. And you might be looked at just a little bit suspiciously because you're not the same. And these cultural differences between the Hebrews and the Hellenists was challenging the unity in the early church. While they were united in Christ, some of their attitudes and prejudices that had been formed before they were saved was now infiltrating the church. And we, live in a, we also live in the midst of a world that's filled with tensions and divides and prejudices, don't we? And some of those run pretty deep. And some of those challenge our unity. As the past few weeks, months, and years have taught us, the racial and socioeconomic and political divides in our country are growing wider and wider. We're about to finish eight years with our country's first black president, yet the racial divide in our country is greater than it's been in over half a century. There's more wealth in our country today than ever before. Yet our socioeconomic divide is greater than ever. And the church is not immune. Statistics would suggest that our country is never more segregated than it is during this hour on Sunday morning. But this is not the biblical model. The biblical model is one of unity. The biblical model is one of integration. The biblical model is one of care for all people, 
that the model is under attack because it's far easier to share our faith. It's far easier to share our lives and our resources with people who are like us than it is to share with people who are different from us, isn't it? It's far easier to share with people who look like us, people who act like us, people who think like us, people who believe like us, people who have families like us, people who have jobs like us, people who go to schools like us. It's far easier to share our lives and our resources and our faith with people who are like us than it is to share with people who are different from us. And so in Acts 6.1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. The apostles have a real problem on their hands, don't they? The unity that they've been preaching and working hard to create is in jeopardy. But in order to understand their solution to the problem, we actually need to go back in time to another event when there were people who were hungry and needed to be fed. In Mark chapter 6, we find the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's an event that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, which are the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. In fact, in two of the Gospels, it's actually repeated a second time, which tells us the importance that Christ placed on the lessons that the disciples needed to learn from this experience. Because the lessons that they learned from this experience would go on to shape their future ministry and the future church. And so a little background, when we arrive at the story in Mark 6, the disciples are just getting back from their first expedition without Christ, their first time of ministry on their own. And they're coming back to him to tell him everything that's happened. And that's where we pick up the story. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was getting late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much bread to give them something to eat? 
How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. So let's unpack this a little bit. The disciples had been busy doing ministry, and they were tired and they were hungry, and they were ready for a break. And in fact, Jesus told them that they needed a break. And now, when they show up to the place where they think they're going to get their rest, they simply find more work to do. They wanted rest. But Jesus saw the crowds and had compassion on them first thing he wants the disciples to see is that our compassion should not be limited by our energy or our personal capacities. So Christ begins teaching them many things. And the disciples are standing off at the side looking at their watches saying, "Um, does he know what time it is? It's getting really late. Um, Christ, um, just Excuse us for a second. Um, You think you could wrap this up? Could you just send these people away? It's getting late. They're getting hungry. And and by the way, Christ, we're hungry too. Don't you remember you, you brought us here for rest? The disciples are being a little self centered, perhaps. But give them credit, they're being practical and logical too. Look at how Christ responds to them. He says, you know what, guys? You're absolutely right. They probably are getting hungry. Thanks for for bringing that need to my attention. And you know what? If they're hungry, they probably can't really listen very well to what I'm trying to say to them because that rumbling in their stomach is getting in the way. But you know what? I'm not done teaching yet. There's more they need to know. So... Could you guys just feed them for me? The second thing he wants them to see is that their job does not end when the teaching is over. Because their job is not merely spiritual. Their job is to meet both spiritual and physical needs. And he also teaches them the importance of assigning responsibilities. He didn't say, oh, you guys are right, they're hungry, let me stop everything I'm doing and feed them. He stays focused on his teaching. And he says, you guys go feed them for me. I don't know exactly what the disciples were thinking, but I know what I would have been thinking. I thought, really, Jesus? These people chase us all the way around the lake. They're interrupting our time of rest. And they're irresponsible. 
They didn't even plan ahead and bring any food with them. They're adults. And now it becomes my problem to feed them? They say to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we really going to go spend that much money on bread to feed them? The disciples have an attitude of condemnation. A Christ has an attitude of compassion. He doesn't ask why they didn't come prepared. He doesn't ask why they didn't stop off to pick up food on the way. He doesn't ask why they haven't been more responsible. He sees the need, and he says to his disciples, Hey, come on, guys. Let's feed them. How much food do we have? Third thing he wants the disciples to see is that we need to start with what we have before we ask God to provide more. In John's account of this event, he says that they found a boy with five loaves and two fish. Well, at least someone came prepared. He probably had a good Jewish mother who packed his lunch for him. But the five loaves and two fish weren't enough to share with anybody. It was a meal designed for one. Because the loaves weren't loaves of bread as we think of big loaves of bread. They were these small barley loaves, much more like we would think of crackers. And a person would eat several of them for a meal, typically five and a couple fishes. But the boy was willing to give it all away. He had no idea what was going to happen. He would likely go hungry. But he said, hey, God, if this is what you need, I'll give it all to you. I don't know about you, but that causes me to stop and think a little bit. We debate about how much we should be giving to the church. Does the Bible really say I've got to give 10%? I just, I don't know if I'm going to have enough for myself if I give that much. And statistics would suggest that most of us don't because the average Christian gives about 2% to the church. But the boy, the boy was willing to give it all away the boy didn't say, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. The, yep, they tell me 10%. Um, okay, let me do the math. Yep, you can have half a loaf. No, he says, take it all. Are we giving God everything he's asking from us? Or only what we think we can afford to live without? So then Christ tells him to have everybody sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties the fourth thing he wants them to see is that they need to create the right structures and the right order if the plan is going to work. And then taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looks up to heaven and gives thanks and breaks the bread. And he gives it to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they all ate and they were all satisfied. The fifth thing they needed to learn was that Christ would create from what they had. Christ would create from what they had given if they were willing to give it away. When we give God what we have, he can multiply it so that there is enough for everybody. Because the boy got to eat too.
And then we read on, the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. The sixth thing they needed to learn from this experience to carry forward is that we are nourished by our service. By feeding the crowd, he also fed his disciples. In fact, what he's saying to them is, not only did you guys get dinner tonight, but take a basket. Here's lunch for tomorrow. Now get in the boat and get out of here. So back to Acts 6. How did the disciples apply the model they've learned from Christ to the problems and the crisis that's facing the early church? Pick up in Acts 6 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. So what was the apostles' response to the problem? The first thing we see is that they gather everybody together. They don't try and hide from the problem. They don't try and deny the problem. They don't try and pretend there's nothing wrong going on and everything's okay, guys, right? We're all together in Christ. It's all good. No, they just bring everybody together and say, yep, we've got a problem. But they kept first things first because what they realized is that the spiritual and material concerns are so interwoven that one always affects the other, for better or for worse. Too much of either is a problem. Too little of either is a problem. When we get them out of balance, it's a problem. They couldn't ignore their primary job but they couldn't allow this issue to be ignored either. And it's interesting that they didn't attempt to assign blame. They didn't go on a winch hunt and say, okay, who's responsible for the distribution? Why aren't you guys feeding their widows? They didn't even ask the question. They simply focused the group on solving the injustice. And they didn't act paternalistically toward the Hellenists. They empowered the people who raised the problem to solve the problem. And they gave gave them the structure and the accountability and the authorities to do it. They said, choose from among yourselves. Choose from among the Hellenists. The people who raised the issue were going to be part of solving the problem. Something we should remember when we raise issues. Are we willing to solve the problems and be part of the solution? They said, choose people who are full of the spirit and wisdom because it's the combination of guidance by the Holy Spirit with the skills and giftings that he's given us that enable us to accomplish the purposes he has for us. And then they let the people be part of the plan because by letting them be part of the plan, it created ownership among them. And it's not that the apostles were unwilling to do the serving. In fact, they had been modeling for the disciples how to serve. 
but it's because of the model that Christ had set for them, the example that they had received, that they knew that they needed to stay focused on what only they could do, and they needed to give the others the opportunity to do what God had called them to do. Everyone needed to take their place and their part in fulfilling the plan. And as they do this, we see in Acts 6-7, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. When the right structure is in place, when everyone is in the right positions, when the, the needs, both the physical needs and the spiritual needs, are being recognized and addressed, then the unity is restored and the gospel spreads. This is the model that Christ demonstrated for the apostles. This is the model they built the early church on, and this is the model that we are called to build the church on. This is why, as a church, we seek to address both spiritual needs and physical needs. This is why, as a church, we seek to address issues of hunger, housing, and health. This is why we have a benevolence committee that manages our deacons fund to come alongside people who are in financial difficulty. It's a fund that those who have much can give to so that it can be distributed to those who are in need. If you're in need, it's there for you. It's anonymous. You can download an application from the website. You can call the church office and they'd be happy to send you one. This is why we run a food pantry for our church community and the community that surrounds us, which runs completely on donations. We publish a list of what the pantry needs each week in the Bethlehem Weekly. You can pick one up out at the ministry highlight table. There's donation bins in both the upper and lower foyer so we can be part of feeding those who are hungry around us. It's why we partner with Family Promise to provide shelter for people who are temporarily homeless. We're going to be hosting the shelter again in just three weeks. Our guests are going to be with us from August 14th to 28th. There's a whole list of opportunities in your bulletin for you to consider. You can sign up by emailing us or out in the foyer today on the sign-up board. And those are just a few of the opportunities that we have as we try and seek to live out God's plan. As you look at the world around you, do you see the needs? Are you raising the needs to other people's attention? Raising awareness? And are you actively participating and involved in meeting those needs? Because this is what it means to be devoted to God's plan. Because God's plan is quite simply God's people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled that you would consider us to be part of your plan. 
we thank you that you have redeemed us, that you've brought us back into relationship with you through Christ. We pray that you would give us eyes like Christ and hearts like Christ, that as we look at the world around us, we would look upon them compassionately, that we would see their great needs, their physical needs, their spiritual needs, and that we would actively seek to be involved in addressing those needs. Thank you for it all. In the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.